Welcome back, folks. This is Mark Steiner right here on The Mark Steiner Show. And Soundbites, our weekly look at food, agriculture, our environment, and energy. Right here on WEAA 88.9 FM. And last week, we heard the first part of a panel that I had moderated at the Future Harvest Casa's 18th Annual Conference called Cultivate the Chesapeake Food Shed. The panel we did was called Policy Scoper, What's Happening in Your State Capital. And we talked about food and agricultural policies in Maryland, Virginia, West Virginia, Delaware, and the District of Columbia, how they're connected, but how they're connected also to what may be happening in this new Trump administration. Today, we'll conclude that conversation with our guests. Ed Key, who is the Delaware Secretary of Agriculture, Spencer Moss, Executive Director of West Virginia Food and Farm Coalition, Eric Benfeld, Area and Extension Specialist of the Community Viability at Virginia Cooperative Extension at Virginia Tech University, Lane Sadowski, who is a Food Policy Director for the District of Columbia and their Office of Planning, and Ferd Hoffner, Senior Strategic Advisor for the National Sustainable Agricultural Coalition. We start off with a question from farmer Carol Morrison. Um, when we're talking about what states can do, mm-hmm. I got you, Carol. <laughs> <laughs> um, where I come from is the Delmarva Peninsula. We're talking about Delaware, Maryland, and Virginia. The trouble that I see with most of the small farmers in diversifying, especially into animal production. The resources are unavailable, such as your infrastructure. There's lack of transportation, there's lack of feed mills, there's lack of processing, and there's lack of buying the animals to start with. Um, Not just chickens, but everything. Um, You know, when, when I switched over, I went to eggs because I didn't have to process any meat. On farm processing for me, is not certified by a USDA inspector, so therefore state laws regulate or limit me to what my markets can be. And there's an issue there with we have to follow federal law, we have to follow state law. They're all differing, and trying to work all these logistics out is a nightmare. I mean, I go all the way to Pennsylvania for feed, and that is totally ridiculous for bulk feed. Um, you know, and as far as the chicks that we buy, we start our hens out as chicks. They come all the way from New Mexico. That is stupid. Um, we're talking about carbon footprints and whatnot. If the states were to get together, especially in my area, how hard would it be to work together to develop this? I mean, you can travel from one end of that peninsula to the other in what, Ed, three Three hours, you know. um, Takes me four. Yeah, and and, okay, so let's. Yeah, I used to be four, not anymore. Um, But if the three states were to combine to help with these things, and especially with the meat processing, to ensure that it could be a USDA inspected facility, so it would open up the markets for the farmers. This is uh, Carol Morrison. I think it was one of the critical points. We've talked about this a lot. Over the years, and our, this program is going to be on Soundbites, our weekly show on food and farm. Again, I think this is one of the issues we've wrestled with because let's take Maryland right now. And, and Ferdinand, I want you to jump in on how this might, what, what some ideas are about floating around how to deal with this. There's like a, there was a, there, that, that facility was built at University of Maryland Eastern Shore. Mm-hmm. Never, opened it. Never opened it. It's been there forever, which is a up to date, state of the art facility for slaughter that small farmers could be using all across Delmarva rather than having to not have a place to go, and so they can't sell their product. I mean, so th- th- these issues are real. So that, that, these are the kind of things that change the nature of the economy, this kind of farming that we're talking about here in this room, that nobody seems to be taking seriously or dealing with. So well, can, can you speak to that, Ferd? I'll just make a few comments uh, that, are, that are somewhat related. And the first one is right now and actionable, so I just want to get it out there on the table. Uh, it's sort of the the contract production end, so it's not actual Carol's question, but the when when President Obama was candidate Obama in 2008, he made several key parts of his 
Plank, and one of them was he was going to be the president who finally put teeth in the Packers and Stockyards Act and did regulations so that it could be enforced so that contract growers, whether they're in chickens or hogs or beef, you know, would actually have some rights that Congress gave them back in the 1920s but uh, has been pretty much unenforced. And uh, lo and behold, that actually happened just in December. So it took eight years. It was a, a long process. I won't go through that. But they're out there now. And uh, we, we very much want to make sure Congress does not try to stop them before they ever see the light of day. So I, can, I, I, I don't have time to go into it here. But I, anybody that wants to talk to me about that later, I'm happy to talk about it. I will say that we right now have a have a commitment from the Food Safety Inspection Service at the Department of Agriculture, which is the Meat Inspection Service, Meat and Poultry, um, that we are going to have quarterly on-farm meetings with small and very small meat processors, including poultry, um, to, this is, this is not what FSIS would say, this is what I would say, to begin to tr break down the idea that one size fits all when it comes to food safety and that we really need to have a set of rules and procedures and guidance that makes sense for very small processes. So we did the first meeting. It was in Indiana. It was at an on-farm multi-species processing plant. There was a lot of cross-education. We're doing the next one in Arkansas with uh, American Pastured Poultry Association. Uh, we're going to do one out in Denver, one up in New England. So anyway, we're going to keep these going and try to figure out from the food safety end, this is not from the economic development end, uh, how to make it work better. But we need to work that economic development end as well. And um, uh, oh, I guess that was my last point. In in the 2018 Farm Bill, we will have a proposal. It's not specific to meat processing, but it's more about how to grow local regional food infrastructure, including meat processing, uh, in a way that where the federal government could partner with the financial community to actually <laughs> grow the infrastructure that's so badly needed. We did pitch this to the presidential transition team that doesn't quite exist yet as something that President Trump will want to see in his infrastructure bill, which is supposed to be a trillion dollars, supposed to be coming later this year. We shall see about that um, uh, because that's a key piece of the infrastructure for the world we live in. So anyway, th those are just some federal points. But I'm really curious about the... Uh, Eric, okay, do, you, do you want to say something? I was just going to build off of that with, you know, thinking about where the processing facility, but then also food system infrastructure... I work as a community viability specialist and often get calls about, well, we need a local food hub or a regional food hub. Like every county in Virginia wants a food hub. And just from a community development philosophy, you have to do a lot to build interest in the community engagement to have something like that succeed rather than you know, just throwing money at it. And I think often, whether it's through economic development or grant programs, we can throw money at thinking we're going to provide a solution, but really we're maybe creating a problem because we haven't done the groundwork to really get the community engaged. I do want to get back to the audience. Anybody wants to jump in and respond to that as well? I guess I'll just sort of throw in very quickly. Um, you know, we're definitely experiencing a similar sort of issue around the sort of infrastructure and the food hub. We're often that key distribution point that many different resources are coming to and out of and that uh, we have a traffic problem <laughs> that leads to other problems as far as cost for businesses and economic viability. So I think that we need to involve the transportation community in helping us to solve this problem because they have the models, they have freight expertise, and you know we are, we're hitting some pinch points in that straw they were talking about at lunch. Go back here, and we'll come back to the panel. Hi, Whitney Pipkin with the Chesapeake Bay Journal, Delmarva Farmer, etc. Um, I had a question for each of you, kind of from coming from your state houses and bringing that perspective. If there was one bill that farmers or people in this audience should be watching in the coming year, one or two, um, what do you think are going to be the big things that are going to affect farmers at the state level? And then nationally, I already attended your session on the farm bill. But um, is there, so I got an email from CSBI, Center for Science and the Public Interest, 
about this kill list of things that the Congress, that there's a the Freedom Caucus in the Congress wants to kill, including national school lunch policy at the top of that. Does such a list exist, Ferd, and what might be on that briefly as well? Who's on the line here? Thank you very much. So, I'm sorry, and just to clarify, policies at the state that'll be... Yeah, that state. are coming up. That are coming up for firm. I think for us, we're looking at procurement um, policies in West Virginia. Again, a very specific state, but procurement and then um, on-farm. Actually, maybe more, more important, two things. I lied. Okay. <laughs> on the offense, on-farm processing. So both a cottage foods kind of law and um, on-farm meat processing, um, which makes a lot of our small farms really viable, the ability to, to do that and have the value-added pieces. Um, and then on defense for us, and again, in a state that's really heavy oil and gas and very extractive, playing defense on bills that would um, you know, potentially really harm farmland. Um, and the majority of folks in West Virginia do not own their mineral rights, so they don't really have any protections against uh, fracking. Um, so. Eric in Virginia? I would say similarly on farm processing issues and questions of eminent domain and uh, you know how do you deal with with that? Yes. I would say in Delaware, the farmers and a lot of the small businesses, um, family-owned businesses, whether maybe not even related to agriculture. I think uh, last year they they fought it and they're going to have to fight it again. What they're worried about the most from the Delaware General Assembly is the minimum wage law. And, and they have uh, increased the minimum wage in the past. They're just afraid that some of these proposals are just too much for small businesses and for farming. So if your question is, what's on farmers' minds coming out of our state house, minimum wage law scares them the most. And I say that, I don't want to convey in any way that they want to underpay their growers. It's just, how does, this, how does the structure work? I think in Maryland going to see the, the battle on the floor of the General Assembly will be probably around uh, whose responsibility is for the manure and the chickens, who really owns them, who's responsible for what definitely goes into the bay and the rivers. And that bill was kind of killed last year, but this year it may just come out. It could be a gigantic debate. I think that's going to be the, the biggest thing in the state of Maryland. Since there's nobody else in Maryland on the panel, I'll just throw that out there. D.C. has some policies. Yeah. Um, for D.C., for defense, I guess I would say protecting our food benefits. We have extensive food benefits beyond SNAP and WIC, um, whether it's Fredgy Bucks, our fruit and vegetable prescription program, um, Produce Plus. That really expands our capacity to um, expand the safety net for our residents, and we are going to fight tooth and nail to keep those. Um, and then on the offense side, we are looking into the good food purchasing policy, so supporting local sustainable procurement, um, starting to think through protecting and updating our Healthy Schools Act and also our grocery store access. So we are really trying to hit those bills that affect the communities who we perceive are going to be really hurting the most under the new administration. So that's where our focus is. Well, if I was just going to try to quickly tackle the federal question. So on, on regulations, there are, there are basically four ways that a regulation, uh, that Congress could try to undo uh, an existing regulation for public health or safety or nutrition or whatever, or environment, whatever the issue is. One is if it if it was approved um, during the last basically seven months of the the last seven months of the Obama administration and it's economically significant, which I won't go into, but it has to be a big rule. Congress can kill it under the Congressional Review Act, um, and um, they they will start doing that in the coming weeks. Um, and the the difficulty on that issue is that it takes floor time every time you do that so there's only x number of rules i don't know what x will be but less than 10 that can be handled in that way in the amount of floor time that they'll have available so that's that's step route 1 route 2 is the new administration can come in and delay or uh deep six rules that are in process but aren't finished um uh, so that's a that's second step. Third step, uh, and one that I think will be the most the one to watch the most carefully is when 
when it comes towards the end of April and they're doing the government funding bill. This this April is when they're going to do the government funding bill for the year that started October 1st, so it's strange in that respect. But when they do that, they can add what we call policy writers to the appropriations bill that basically says, uh, you know, if you want to implement rule X uh, for pesticide regulation or nutri nu nutrition standards or whatever, we are providing no money under this appropriation bill to do that, which has the same effect of killing it. So watch for that one. And the fourth way would be Congress could actually change the law that is being implemented through the rulemaking, which would be the most straightforward way, but always the last one that for some reason Congress thinks about when killing regulation. So the quick answer is on the CSPI information you got, which I didn't see, but um, they were talking about all these mechanisms and in their case, all the nutrition standard rules that they've worked so hard to help create and could they go. I mentioned that in my opening, I think on healthy food, nutrition standard issues. They will, there will definitely be some that will have to be defended. Uh, menu menu uh, labeling, um, salt, sugar standards, things like that will have to be very carefully watched in the next year. Thank you. So <clears throat> I'm Jamie Baxter. I'm with Prince Charitable Trusts. I also <clears throat> work with a, a bunch of foundations in the region that support food system reform and the viability of, of small farms throughout the region. Um, question, and I've had three different questions because you've answered each one as I was waiting. Um, so I've, I'm, I had to sort of think on the fly. They're all in the same vein, which is I think what I'm hearing a lot of in terms of the, 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 the policies, right, that <clears throat> are needed in order to support and increase the viability of small farms. And it's and my question is based on these sort of base these assumptions or generalizations, I'll say, which is to not get into industrial ag, right, or sustainable ag. But if you have big ag, right, and small ag, and and with the the concentration of wealth in big ag, right, moving to a very few um, who actually gain the vast share of the profit, right, whereas uh, and and less of it to be available to small ag, right, the the, the small farmer, the producer who's barely making ends meet. And you have a, an effort around localizing food systems that deals with all of the things that were mentioned in various iterations on this panel that help to bring more of the profit of food down toward the local level, right? Whether it's processing or growing or selling or distributing, et cetera. So, and you have that assumption. And you have a third, which is getting more into the political realm, which is if there was anything that I think was clear based on the elections at the federal, state, or local level, rural America spoke up, right? And they said there are a number of things that aren't working well um, in our towns and our communities, and we would like to see that changed. So if you have all of those assumptions <laughs> and you have a whole body of policy work that's already been well underway to try to implement these reforms from a federal level down to a state to a local level, how can the community of folks who see these connections that are independent of sustainable or industrial or anything, they're just about really improving the viability of local economies, particularly rural economies, and making them work and function for all the people who play different parts. How could, how, what does a coalition look like that can advance that sort of an agenda? And how can the community help sort of see that coalition come to be, um, in particular, the foundation community. Could you just slow my closing question? <laughs> <laughs> That's good. So let's, let's respond then. Come on up, Achilles. So who wants to grab this first? Eric, somebody? Just jump on in. And I'll, I'll, it's a great and Edgy. thoughtful question. It really is. And, and I don't say that to be polite. It, it's on the money. The answer is so complex and so multifaceted we could work in here as a group for three months and maybe come up with some great ideas. I'm sure we could. I think it's it, the, for me as a state ag secretary, and, and I have preached big tent. There's room in agriculture for the whole gamut. And I think there's some Delaware people here that would confirm that's been our stance. I think it's communication. Number one, it's communication. Number two, it's communication. Number three, it's communication. And, and that's not always easy. I think 
you know, and I'm speaking from Delaware, which is different than certain counties in Maryland and different than other places. And it's really amazing. So my answer is it's a great question. I think everybody's got to be at the table. And I just want to plug, and I promise I won't say anything the rest of the day, but I commissioned people in my department and also at the University of Delaware to do to, to get people to think about what you just said. And so they went out and interviewed probably 50 people from poultry growers to organic growers to people in the inner city, which we haven't talked about much, but I am very, very concerned. I can ship a truckload of watermelons to Boston easier than I can get a six-wheeler of mixed vegetables into the city of Wilmington, Delaware, and distribute it properly. And there's a lot of social issues inside of all that. So anyway, Mark, I brought a copy for you. It's called Connecting Healthy Farms to Healthy Delawareans. And, and it's a dialogue. And, you know, we have six priorities and then six action steps. The priorities we've all touched on. The action step, which we don't have in Delaware, maybe other states do, establish a Delaware Farm and Food Policy Council accountable to the governor. And that's our attempt to kind of get at what you're saying in Delaware. And I hope the next administration, since next week, I'll be a free man, but <laughs> I, I hope, I'm sure this has traction in our state. And Mark, I'll leave this with you. Appreciate it. If you go on the, call our department or go on the University of Delaware website, you can find it there, but if anybody's interested. So we're supposed to end this two minutes ago. So let me get a final thought right here from the audience and we will end. I'll be very quick. Um, my name is Michelle Levy. I'm with the Maryland Farmers Market Association. We're a statewide nonprofit based in Baltimore. I promise I didn't plant the last question as a segue, though it feels like we did. Um, I just wanted to quickly share a few pieces of things coming up in Annapolis this session that are directly pertinent to food and ag. Um, the first is just per this conversation we're having now about coalition building. There's actually an effort um, that I've been part of for the past few years to develop a Maryland state food charter that, again, it's no ideal solution. We know there are big questions, but the objective is to bring folks to the table who are all engaged in parts of the food system that have previously been siloed and to figure out what we need to push legislators to recognize food in all policies and ensure that the work we're doing is mutually beneficial. So one example that comes to mind with federal nutrition benefits in Maryland, there are over $11 million that go into the WIC fruit and vegetable check every year. Only 1% of that is captured at farmers markets. So we're introducing legislation this session called the Maryland Farms and Families Act, and it would create a mandatory appropriation from the state to fund the Maryland Market Money Program, which is an initiative we run that matches purchases made using federal nutrition benefits at farmers markets statewide. So it's doubling the purchases of folks using their EBT, their SNAP, or their WIC, or their farmers market nutrition program. We're looking for as much support as possible, trying to emphasize that this is economic stimulus. It's untapped revenue for farmers that we're trying to access. I put a one-pager on my card in the back. Um, taking up more time now, but if anyone is a grower in Maryland, is involved with farmers markets in Maryland, eats food in Maryland, and is willing to support in any way, I'd love to talk to you afterwards. So thank you. So Thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you. So um, let me take our panel first before we all end here. Ferd uh, uh, Hoffner and Ed Key, uh, the retiring Secretary of Agriculture from Delaware, um, Eric Benfeld, uh, Lainey Kodowski and Spencer Moss from West Virginia. Good to have all of you up in this panel. That was the second part of the panel that I moderated at the Future Harvest Costa's 18th annual conference. The conference was called Cultivate the Chesapeake Food Shed. The panel was called Policy Scoper, looking at what's happening in state capitals around our whole region West Virginia, Virginia, Delaware, District of Columbia, and Maryland. If you want to hear the first part of this panel, please listen to last week's episode of Soundbites at steinershow.org. Take a short break, but stay with us. When we come back, we hear a conversation about Trump's pick for the EPA, Scott Pruitt, and how that's all connected to what's going to happen to the Chesapeake Bay, how that's connected to some of the bills that are being debated in the 2017 Maryland General Assembly. We'll be talking with Betsy Nicholas, who is the Executive Director of Chesapeake Waterkeepers, and Dean Nauyuk, who is the Potomac Riverkeeper. And on our way to break, let me remind you, the Mark Steiner Show is brought to you in part by MeQ, Baltimore's Credit Union, offering a full range of financial services, MeQ, 
Baltimore's credit union has been helping its members and its community prosper for the last 80 years. When you invest in yourself, MeQ invests in you. And remember, it's a credit union, not just a bank, belongs to you. Money comes back in the end. More information at www.mecu.com or at steinershow.org is MeQ, Baltimore Credit Union's banner. Welcome back, folks. This is Mark Steiner right here on The Mark Steiner Show. And Sound Bites are our weekly look at food, farming, energy, and our environment. And we're going to do a little bit of a mixture of state and local here in this conversation, looking at what uh, is in front of the Maryland State Legislature, also what could be happening with the EPA and more in this coming administration and issues surrounding all of that. Uh, we are joined in studio by Betsy Nicholas, who is Executive Director of Chesapeake Waterkeepers, and Dean Nayucks, who, Nayucks, who is the Potomac Riverkeeper. And Dean and Betsy, welcome. Good to have you both here. Thank you. Thank you. So, um, Betsy, I, I do want to start with uh, some of the stuff that's in, in, going to come before Annapolis. And we spent a lot of time in the past talking about <clears throat> antibiotics legislation um, and talking with Purdue about their voluntarily pulling back on using antibiotics uh, in their chicken production. So what is left? I mean, what is being, what's going to be the debate happening in the legislature around that? Well, there's actually a bill that's going in that's very consistent with what Purdue's already doing. So um, companies that are really leading the way in this, like Purdue, wouldn't have to make any changes at all. But for other companies that haven't um, made changes, it, it would affect their business. And what it's asking them to do is to not use antibiotics that are important in humans, so those medically important antibiotics on animals that aren't sick. So it would restrict those uses that are really about uh, disease prevention in animals or you know, just trying to make them grow faster when they're in confined environments. Um, and that's really to try and get at this issue of antibiotic resistance that's really becoming a human health threat. Which I want to get into in a deeper, a deeper piece here. I mean, one of the things that, that, uh, that was, was, I became aware of and some of the stuff that you mailed to us as well is, is these, this outbreak that has just took place, I think, is in Nevada. Yes. Right? Uh, that was just reported. And, and so, I mean, what, maybe you both can jump in this news, but you can start and, and, and Dean, feel free to jump in here. But, I mean, just the... I think we really understand the dangers. I mean, antibiotics become like the aspirin of of of, of, of our of our of our century. People take them all the time for everything and anything, so it already dumbs down. It already dampens our immune system um, in terms of the use of antibiotics. So, what is so important about what you're talking about here? Well, you know, as you mentioned, antibiotics are tremendously important for. Um, for curing diseases in humans. And we have just made so many uh, changes to our medical system because of it and been able to uh, heal and cure diseases because of it. But right now, we're using over 70% of the antibiotics um, that are used in this country are used in animals, um, in livestock, rather than in humans. So that's 70%. And the majority of that use is not for sick animals. It's for this sort of disease prevention. A lot of animals, certainly not all, but a lot of animals are raised in overly confined environments, factory farm sort of settings, industrial operations. And they're not very healthy. Um, in those settings. So they're given these low doses of daily antibiotics to keep them from getting sick. When you have that constant exposure to antibiotics like that, it creates disease-resistant antibiotics or antibiotic-resistant diseases. And that's where a lot of these, what we're hearing now termed superbugs, are coming from, is they're developing a resistance to all of these different antibiotics. And that spreads to humans through it coming out through water, through the animal waste, as well as direct contact from workers that are around these animals. So, Dean, how is it working region-wise? Do you have a sense of that as well? Well, <clears throat> I mean, we know that I've worked on factory hog farms in eastern North Carolina. I know that a uh, certainly a concern was that the antibiotics were then uh, passing through and getting in and contaminating groundwater, which was then contaminating people's drinking wells and making people um, you know, less resistant to antibiotics. So it comes full circle. Then when you add the superbugs in, it creates a whole other problem. 
And then obviously here in the Chesapeake region, we have, you know, major problem with poultry operations, one of the biggest sources of water pollution in the Chesapeake of nutrients and phosphorus. So um, anytime you're concentrating these animals, um, you know, just the amount of waste that you're creating and the concentration and the, the, you know, the potential impact from diseases just increases exponentially. And Betsy and I could go on and on about so many different issues and cases about that. But I, I think, you know, most people obviously get the point that this is a um, not only an environmental problem, but a serious public health issue as well. So, so what, the argument on, on, from the from their side in terms of there being people who use the, the antibiotics <clears throat> is this is the only way to keep their animals healthy, especially in large animal operations where animals are so close together. Diseases can be passed back and forth. They could lose a flock. They could lose... Uh, a herd or whatever they're whatever they're raising, I mean, doesn't that have some weight? Not really, because we've seen that many people can do this. There are many many farmers and farm even large farm operations in Maryland that are doing a great job and very successful without using antibiotics in this way. They're only treating animals that get sick, which we support. Certainly, we wouldn't want any animal suffering or uh, animals that get sick to not be treated. Um, And the largest um, uh, animal, the largest poultry operator in the state, Purdue, has already made this commitment that they're not going to do this. So there is a great example that this can be done and be economically profitable and uh, get this use out of there. So, Mr. is the argument that that people feel they're already overregulated and don't tell us one more thing we can't do or we have to do in terms of raising our animals? I mean, where's the opposition coming from? Because it can't seem to get itself out of committee. The bill itself. Correct. Um, I I think sometimes there's confusion over it. Uh, Certainly there's concern about overregulation. And sometimes I think it's just a lack of understanding that this will not impair, um, you know, farmers' ability to make the right choices about medicating sick animals, that that is still allowed. They can still do that. Um, This is just taking away that unnecessary use of, uh, you know, that constant use of antibiotics. and Dean, let me bring you back here, man. So, what, what, what do you, why do you think it's so difficult to get these things passed? Uh, getting anything passed in the <laughs> agricultural area is difficult and complicated. There's, uh, there's just a resistance to regulation there, and um, it, it's, it's a hard bar to get over. It is. I mean, I think that's not just here. It's probably around the around the country and all through the region, right, Dean? Yeah, I mean, I, I just think it's a false choice to say this is the industry wants you to believe that this is the only way that we can raise enough animals. And it's just not accurate. Um, the reality is, is by concentrating these animal feeding operations into this what we call vertical integration, you know, it is basically put farmer after farmer out of business. And, you know, if you look at the vast majority of the population are no longer farmers. You know, they've been pushed out of the business. They have to work through these contract grower, um, you know, vertical integration systems that really uh, make it very difficult to to actually be a farmer in this day and age. So <clears throat> I just don't believe it. And, you know, the there's plenty of people that are raising animals. And the bottom line is, if we're if we're raising unhealthy animals, we're eating unhealthy animals. That's not good for us as humans to eat these animals that are being raised in horrible conditions that are not healthy, that are literally being pumped with steroids and antibiotics and everything else just to be kept alive, uh, just to get them to the market. So, uh, you know, I think most people are waking up and realizing that um, they would prefer to have their meat from someplace else. They prefer to support family, local family farmers. They would prefer to get their, their meat and their food and their produce from those local family farmers. Those are the people that we need to put back in business and start creating more jobs for farmers and start buying locally. And I think part of the, we, not again, we don't have time to get into this too deeply today, but I, the more you two talk, the, the, we talk about this together, the three of us, the more I realize the kind of discussions we need to have here on Sound Bites and the Steiner Show, just to kind of look at this in depth, because, you, you, you know, it's the, the argument can be made that we have become a society where we want to have chicken on the table. Most people are not vegans or vegetarians. Not that it's a bad thing, because most people are not vegans or vegetarians. 
and and that they want to have inexpensive meat, whether it's chicken or 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 or, or, or beef or whatever that is, um, on the table, and and that we've not in our system, our marketing system, system of growing food and marketing food is geared towards that, in and that and people can afford it, um, and that's um, that's a really critical factor in all of this. I think that's that's. That's always and, – and it's one of the industry's arguments about why you can't push this around. Yes, and they've used that um, very <clears throat> successfully to date. But uh, <laughs> you hear a lot about saying about let the economy work or, or free markets or things like that with regard to agriculture. But yet it is the furthest from a free market economy of – any industry in existence. The agricultural industry is so heavily dependent on subsidies. The commodity crops of corn and soy are what really drive the livestock industry. And with that model playing out the way it is, we can't ever really get a fair shake for those who are doing it differently. Those who are doing it small scale and organic, they don't have those subsidy systems holding them up. And so, of course, it's more expensive for them. They don't have the government or really the taxpayers paying half or two-thirds of their bills. Um, But yet those who are working on the old system that creates a lot of pollution and creates public health problems do have the taxpayers paying so many of their bills for them. And we just have to get that um, system reworked uh, because it doesn't really work for us in the long term. I mean, to me, that that, um, that, that that the more we're talking, as I said, we're going to kind of create these discussions over the next bunch of months because I think they're really important to have. Yes. But let me come back to antibiotics and then move into to how this could be affected by where this next four years um, in the White House could take all of this. But so, what is the outlook for this for these bills that you're talking about in in, in Annapolis? I mean, it's never been easy to get this out of committee. Do you think it's out of committee this year? What's what are the political factors? I think it's out of committee this year, but um, <laughs> but I, that may be, be may be me being hopeful. You know, I think that one thing that could be good for Maryland is um, in, in talking to some legislators. I think there's a little bit of fear about what's happening at the federal level, and a recognition that we're not going to have a strong EPA as a backstop. And so if we want to protect Maryland's environment, um, that's going to be the job of the administration and the legislators in Maryland to do that. So no longer is there going to be that sort of safety net at the federal level. And there's also the atrazine is going to be an issue. This, that's going to be raised again? Yes. Banning uh, atrazine, which you can describe for a moment? A- atrazine um, is an herbicide. It's the second most prevalent herbicide. Uh, glyphosate, um, which is used commonly in Roundup, is the, the most common. Atrazine is a really big problem in terms of being an endocrine disruptor. Which means? Which means that it, well, uh, in, in, in here, my big scientific speak, it messes with your reproductive system, um, and we got for, that. That makes that's that's clear, <laughs> right? Um, so, where we see that a lot is um, with fish. We have intersex fish, and what that means is male fish are developing eggs as a result of atrazine exposure, and this is very prevalent in the Chesapeake. Our three largest waterways, the Potomac. Dean's Waterway that he's watching out for, mm-hmm. the Susquehanna and the James, the three largest waterways in the Chesapeake, all have this problem of intersex fish because of atrazine. So, Dean, I don't know if you want to say a little bit more about that. No, I mean, I just think, you know, when you start seeing um, these problems with intersex fish, um, we believe it's the canary in the coal mine. And while I think, again, the ag industry likes to point to wastewater treatment systems, the reality is is more and more science is coming out that this is being directly linked to agriculture and the runoff problems um, and the pollution problems coming off of the farms. So, but yet the ag industry wants no regulations to control runoff. They are anti-buffers. They're anti-regulations. They fight the Clean Water Act. They're actually in many ways exempt from the Clean Water Act. Um, and yet they still 
try to say that they're being overregulated, and and that's the frustrating part about it. So, um, again, I hope that was helpful. And one of the things that's really troubling about um, these these chemicals like atrazine is that our drinking water um, systems don't have the technology to pull them out. We don't. First of all, we don't have good information on them of the human health um, impacts of them. We know what they're doing in some senses to frogs and to fish, but we don't really know what they're doing to us. But we are. We have them in our system. Um, we're getting exposed to them. And so what we're looking to in a bill that's going to be brought forward by uh, Senator Will Smith is a study, just a health study to find out where is the exposure. So this bill's not looking for a ban. It's looking for a study. It's looking for a study. And Will Smith is from where? Uh, Will Smith is from Montgomery County, Silver Spring area. So, which is where most of the bills seem to come from. Uh, well, that's where most of the people are in Maryland. <laughs> that's true. That's true, too. That's true, too. That's true, too. That's true, too. So, and, I, and I would say if people, if your listeners want to learn more about this, yeah, Google uh, emerging contaminants and look at, if you don't believe us, what the USGS has, has discovered in waterways all over the country, because this isn't just common to these rivers. This is happening in other waterways, and um, it is a huge problem. And again, I we believe it's the canary in the coal mine, but... Look at what the U.S. Geological Service has found in waterways all along the country just by Googling, Googling emerging contaminants. And one of the things, you know, it's interesting when you said that. I was thinking about this. When you, when you Google emerging contaminants, you get U.S. Coast and Chidek, but you also get EPA that has a page on, on, uh, on emerging contaminants in our waterways um, on their website. But now we have... When, as people are listening to this uh, program today, uh, we're in our second day of hearings with Scott Pruitt to become the new head of this of the EPA. And if it follows the way the votes have followed in every other uh, nominee that Donald Trump has put in, then Scott Pruitt will most likely be the next head of the Environmental Protection Agency, which is always, as you said earlier, Betsy, been the backstop. Um, if the if legislature didn't want to push, well, the EPA pushed back and said, no, you got to do this. And you, we may have a very different reality, both politically and environmentally, coming up in the next four years. So let's talk about what that will mean. What, what, what you, what, how you can, what you might, what you all might speculate um, about what a Scott Pruitt directed EPA, you know, with, oh, Donald Trump has already said, I want to see who's, who's, who's gone to climate, climate conferences. We want to know who those people are. And, and before we went on the air to tape this, Dean, you were talking about things that were already coming down the pike. So why don't we start with you and then come back over to Betsy? What 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 this what a Scott Pruitt EPA might mean? Well, I mean, obviously Scott Pruitt has tried to sue the EPA fourteen times. Um, he's literally had briefs and memos written by the oil and gas industry, um, and he's received over three hundred thousand dollars in campaign contributions. So from the oil and gas industry. So um, I really have no faith that he will do anything meaningful um, to protect our environment and protect clean air and clean water. And before he's even been confirmed, the Trump administration has already set its sights and stated publicly that they are going after the Clean Water Rule and the Clean Water Act, which is absolutely terrifying. You have sportsmen and anglers all around the country now already gearing up to fight this issue. And we just saw that just a few moments ago, there was an announcement that the Trump administration has um, stopped all grant funding from EPA. And there was a lot of money, like I'm working on Alexandria's uh, combined sewer overflow problem, which is dumping 150 million gallons a year of raw sewage and stormwater into the Potomac River. And so we provided them a funding opportunity to help fix that problem. But that funding opportunity has just evaporated. So, you know, people, I think, take for granted where we've come over the last 45 years. And and this year, by the way, is the 45th anniversary of the Clean Water Act, which makes this even more sad. But, you know, back when I was a kid, I remember going up fishing a thousand islands, New York, and there was raw sewage and toilet paper as far as the eye can see in every embayment until you got out to the main channel. The Cuyahoga River used to catch on fire. I remember that Upwards very well. Upwards of 70 to 80% of our rivers 
were too polluted for fishing and swimming and general recreation. And a lot of people marched on Washington, marched around the country, demanding clean air and clean water laws because of how bad we allowed um, our environment to get. So people just take for granted that they can go out fishing and go out in their boat and take their kids water skiing. And things are getting ready to change unless the American people stand up and demand that we preserve our clean water, our rights to clean water, our rights to clean air. And I am very, very concerned about what this administration means for our clean air and clean water laws. Because you look back to the, just the watershed, Chesapeake Bay watershed, right? That it's always been tough to get places like Pennsylvania to pay attention and do some of the things. That have been The Maryland push has been a little stronger, it seems, and has had more effect. But all that could go by the wayside without having this federal watchdog. Very much so. We had 30 years of the states fighting and blaming each other and nothing getting done in terms of cleaning up the Chesapeake Bay, our nation's largest estuary and something that's just tremendously important for its its beauty, its nature, its resources, and as an economic driver to this region until EPA stepped in and made the states work together and, you know, instituted the Chesapeake Bay total maximum daily load, the cleanup plan that the states have all been working under together since 2010. And while I don't think anybody's going to say it's perfect, it's working. Uh, We have significant improvement, and it's making the states work together. Right now, while Pennsylvania is lagging behind, they know that EPA is looming over their shoulder, making plans. But that could go away very quickly. We have Scott Pruitt um, on record challenging, bringing legal challenge to the Chesapeake Bay cleanup plan when he was governor in Oklahoma. This shouldn't even be of concern to him, but yet he wants to challenge the Chesapeake Bay cleanup plan from Oklahoma. So, I mean, so, so what? Talk about I mean, for a moment, just for our listeners. And, and and just from both your perspectives, this is an interesting way to kind of conclude this. But who is Scott Pruitt? Why um, Dean Nyux is he – what does he represent? Why, as governor of Oklahoma, would he be interfering in Chesapeake Bay? Who is Scott Pruitt? Well, the attorney general of Oklahoma. But he um, – you know, he, I mean <laughs> – I, I think Scott Pruitt has to answer that question, but, you know, from, <laughs> from everything that I've seen, you know, he is, like I said, he represents the oil and gas industry. And, um, you know, keep in mind, <clears throat> Oklahoma is a state where they've allowed fracking. Not only have they allowed fracking, they've allowed the injection of fracking waste, which has created earthquakes. Um there's people that know a lot more about Oklahoma and problems, environmental problems in Oklahoma, so I'm not going to speak a lot to that, but, you know, the bottom line is he has taken a lot of campaign contributions from one particular industry. And, you know, if you look at this administration, you know, they're putting Rick Perry, who's on the board of Dakota Access, um, as Secretary of Energy. And now we have, you know, the former CEO of ExxonMobil as the, you know, Secretary of State. And it just seems to me this alliance with, um, Russia, that we are gearing up to um, really take a step backwards from renewables, even though global investments in renewable energy have surpassed global investments in fossil fuels. That's where Wall Street's investing all their money. That's where the markets are heading. They're trying to change the markets. They're trying to alter capitalism, and they're trying to bring back, I guess, the glory days of um, the oil and gas industry. Um, thinking that that's the long-term solution. It's certainly not the long-term solution for our planet. It's certainly not the long-term solution for clean air and clean water. Coal is dead. It's dying. Um, All the investments are being pulled out of coal. And the idea that we would somehow try to go back, it's like, would we ever go back to using whale oil again? And, you know, people laugh (laughs) at that. But the reality is, is that used to be the primary fuel source. And so, you know, we have started moving away, rightfully so, creating jobs. I mean, Texas, you know, people think of oil. It's one of the leading states for wind production. You know, we are taking a drastic step backwards and we're killing jobs and renewable energy and solar that are flourishing here in this country. And I don't understand it at all. I mean, these people are supposed to be capitalists and they're supposed to be 
um, saying that let the market do its work and uh, dictate, you know, where those jobs and where the, you know, market is going to create that that new source of, you know, industry and job creation, and they're basically killing that. And I don't understand that at all. And it, and it all comes at a significant compromise to our environment and clean air and clean water as well, and obviously climate change. So there's there's a whole lot of concerns there, and it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me, both economically and environmentally. Betsy Nicholas, before we have to run, do you want to add to that? Um, well, certainly there's there's a lot to be concerned about if, um, you know, Scott Pruitt takes office here and especially in the Chesapeake Bay. You know, we have someone coming with him. He doesn't even understand the role of EPA and questions he was getting from Senator Cardin. He doesn't know what the agency does or its responsibilities, but yet he wants to abolish it and uh, fail to follow any of those rules and practices that have dramatically changed our uh, protection of water quality in this country. Water is not a partisan issue. We all need clean water to survive. Um, so having somebody in charge of the agency that sets those rules and regulations understand that at a fundamental level is pretty critical, and I don't think that he does. Well, this is uh, fascinating, important, and a little frightening, and uh, we have a lot of work over the next four years, a lot to kind of keep our eyes on and keep moving on. I'm gonna appreci- I appreciate you both very much for coming in and spending all this time with us today. You just heard Betsy Nicholas, who is Executive Director of Chesapeake Waterkeepers, and Dean Nauyuk, who is the Potomac Riverkeeper, part of that network. And I want to thank you both so much for being with us today. Thank you, Mark. Yeah, thanks for having us. The Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites are productions of the Center for Emerging Media and are possible in part by a grant from the Town Creek Foundation. Our senior producer is Mark Gunnery. Our producer is Amani Spence. Our research producer is Calvin Perry. Our production assistant is Nadia Ramlagan. Our engineer is Andrea Melton. And our theme music is by Warren Matthews of Clean Cuts. Send me your thoughts about today's program to talk at steinershow.org. The podcast of Mark Steiner Show and share it with your friends. Visit us on the web at steinershow.org or listen to us via your favorite podcasting app. And for WEAA 88.9 FM, I'm Mark Steiner. Take care. <laughs>